Welcome to the Springs. <laughs> We're excited about this new look of our building being uh, the right way around. It's not backwards. It was backwards before. So uh, I'm Peter. If you're visiting, uh, thank you for joining us. I serve as the lead pastor. And as much as I'm excited about a new building, I'm more excited about this new series that we're doing called The Unshakables. For the next 12 weeks, we'll cover 12 important foundations of unshakable faith. Everyone say foundations. Now, as I'm going to explain towards the end of my message here, these 12 messages in this series are going to track with the 12 chapters of the Purple Book. And the Purple Book is also known as the Biblical Foundations. That's the artist formerly known as Biblical Foundations. And we, uh, we're going to be going through it this summer. I don't know if you've ever had a struggle to consistently and regularly dig into the Bible, on maybe on a daily basis, just to, to read the Bible, Bible regularly. But I'm guessing that, yes, that you, like me, have struggled a little bit, and therefore it would totally benefit you to have a guide, a help. Now, these purple books that we're going to have available for you are an extremely important and helpful guide to help you navigate the Bible. And you can set a foundation for the rest of your life, and I'm challenging you to do that. Pick up one of those bad boys in the back and just decide that this summer... I'm not just going to start the purple book, but I'm actually going to complete it and build a foundation for the rest of my life. Everyone lives their life on some sort of foundation. Now, I didn't say a good foundation. I just said some sort of foundation because the Leaning Tower of Pizza, Pisa, uh, I would like the Leaning Tower of Pizza. Uh, that's our established 101 class. We're going to have a Tower of Pizza back there for you if you want that. But the Tower of Pisa was built on a foundation, just a bad one. And all of us build our lives on some sort of foundation. Now, you might say, Pastor Peter, you know, I don't build my life on any sort of foundation. That's kind of outdated and worn out and antiquated, that objective kind of foundation talk. I just go with the flow. Well, that is your foundation. The flow with which you go would be your foundation, a very shaky foundation. All foundations in life will also be tested with difficulty and trials. There's a promise for you from the Bible. Everyone, it's not a matter of if, but when. But here's the thing. There is such thing as an unshakable foundation. A foundation that when shaken is not shaken apart. And we're challenging you to dig for yourself. And don't take my word for it. Let's go to God's word. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me. We're going to go to John chapter 1, and the first topic in our unshakable series is the unshakable story. The unshakable story. Now, our text is John chapter 1, starting with verse 1, and I'm going to ask you to prepare your hearts for God's word, because what you're about to hear, please don't take for granted. It is, it is probably some of the most beautiful prose in human history, and it cost this man a lot to declare it under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We'll start with verse 1 of chapter 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made 
through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12. But, but all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. God, please add a blessing to the reading of your word and let us not take it for granted. Help us to honor you as the author and the finisher of our faith and the author of our story. Help us to see our place in your story so that we can glorify you and not waste our lives. Amen. I'm going to make an audacious statement about stories. Stories are perhaps the most powerful elements of human existence. We all process our lives at the core of our being through stories. We use stories to function in the most basic of ways. Stories are, are what's called, what are called the, the macro narratives of life that we operate within. Uh, I've heard one man say that they are the interpretive grids that we use to explain or decipher all of the the data coming our way in life, whether it's emotional data, intellectual data, uh, relational or financial data. We use stories to interpret what we see. In fact, I would say that we are all made not just for a story, but a transcendent, out-of-this-world story. I didn't have to uh, convince my three daughters to embrace the princess story. I didn't have to convince my son to get stoked out of his mind with the whole superhero story. It's just innate within us that we are made for a transcendent story. One that unfortunately Disney and DC Comics have learned to exploit for their own gain and my loss. But all, all worldviews, all people, all isms are essentially stories. Let me demonstrate it to you. There's people that, that cling mostly to, to political type of stories. They're conservative stories or liberalism stories or, cons- or libertarianism stories. Then there's economic stories at the root, Marxism and capitalism. Then there's national stories. There's Romanism, colonialism, Americanism, Texanism, National stories. And then there's religious stories. There's monism, paganism, monotheism, or secular humanism. Now, I said secular humanism is a religious story in that it seeks to replace religion. 
And all stories and isms and people, all these stories have a few basic ingredients without which they're incomplete. There's the creation element of any story. Every worldview, every story has to answer the question, where did things come from? And, and by that, what is our purpose? This is why Western culture over the last about 150 years has so desperately clung to the natural selection or evolution element of the story with really a, a blind faith that's ironically inconsistent with the scientific method. The reason is, is that for 200 years before Darwin, there was this humanism story developing that lacked this essential ingredient of the story. Where did things come from? And I'm not here to argue about the merits of evolutionary theory. I think it's good to talk about these things. I'm not trying to discount any of the reasonable parts of it. I'm just saying that it, it's not just a scientific thing. It's a story thing. It's an element of humanism and that we all function in a story and we need an ingredient like creation. And we need also the fall, the fall element of the story. What fell? What went wrong? Here's what's crazy about all worldviews. Even Buddhists believe that something is wrong with us. Everyone believes. Now, we define it differently because here's the thing. When, when, we, when we say that something's wrong and something went wrong, we necessarily have to cast blame on a wrongdoer. Every worldview has a culprit or a wrongdoer. For the political conservative story, the enemy is the liberal, right? If only the left left, everything would be better according to this story. Well, maybe not. And then the economic stories like Marxism, the enemy is the bourgeoisie. If only they would be disempowered, everyone else would be, wait a minute, still sinners and still exploit others with power. And the sex, sexual gender revolution story, I actually meant to say sexual this time, uh, the gender sexual revolution that started in the 60s and still in full swing, the enemy is anyone outside my body telling me what to do. Any uh, repressive traditionalist and anything outside my body, well, when we assign the wrong enemies, we, we get wrong solutions. But every story has this element of what went wrong and whose fault mostly is it. Every story also has the ingredient of redemption. So there's creation, fall, redemption. How can things be made right? Every story answers this question. You go to church enough, you pray enough this way to this city. You achieve Power through doing these things and that thing, those things. You, you empty yourself. You get educated in the secular humanism story. Or in, in other stories, it's just let it go. Let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. <laughs> you thought you got that out of your head, but you're welcome. It's back. Every story has this element and finally has the restoration element. What is the future hope? So it could be heaven, it could be nirvana in other stories, or, or paradise, or achieving oneness, or self-actualization, whatever that is. Or in Dallas Cowboyism, it's just someday maybe playing a February football game again. Who knows? Too soon. I, I knew I'd offend people on that. But here's the thing. Here's a few 
things about this story that as much as these things I'm about to say are touchy about all stories, we can actually have all these things in common. That number one, not all stories are the same. Number two, watch out, not all stories can be true at the same time. And even a classic pluralist wouldn't disagree with this. Number three, some of us are in the wrong story. Uh, If you're old enough to remember Bill and Ted's excellent adventures, I remember when they would travel through time in their time machine and they get people mixed up in different epics. They're just in the wrong story. And as much as we can laugh at that, there are literally people in this room that are in the wrong story with the investment of our life. And it's costing you greatly in ways that you don't laugh at. But that's the issue. Some of us are in the wrong story. And finally, maybe not everyone in this room can uniformly agree about what the right story is, but we can at least agree that we want to be in the right story. Right? So enough of my diplomacy. I'm going to preach now. I'm going to unpack what God's story is according to the scriptures that we just read. Now, my big idea as I do this is this. The unshakable life lives in surrender to Jesus as he is, as the Lord of all. I just came out and said that. If anything else serves as the essence of your story, it will not only be shaken, but it will be shaken apart forever. Now that's a harsh and exclusive take on reality, but it's a very merciful thing to say because it's true. And you don't necessarily have to learn the hard way. The unshakable life lives in surrender to Jesus as Lord. Now let's walk through this scripture text again. I'll see these four components of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You ready? You ready? All right, you got to talk back to me or else I get all weird in the dark up here. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and I will add it will never overcome it. This is the essence of where we come from. Now when John in first century Roman culture used this word when he says the word was God and with God he used this sacred word. He broke rules on all sorts of ways offending all sorts of cultures. He said the logos was in the beginning. Now this word logos is significant because this was retained only for referring to the ideal and the perfect. In a Platonist society, the immaterial transcendent reality could never really be described or worse yet, humanized. And here you have John saying, this Jesus whom I touched is the Logos. And he also is offending the Jews by saying, and he is Yahweh, eternally existing in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So check out verses one and two. One of the greatest parts about our story is the parts of it that have nothing to do with us. Here you have God, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Logos, then the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
How long ago? Forever ago. Wrap your mind around that. God was having a good time with God. In perfect relationship with himself, in perfection, there was never argument. Uh, They were always on the same team. One God, three persons. He didn't need us. He didn't create us because he was getting lonely or he needed help with something. He was perfect and in perfect harmony with himself. And yet, verse 3, it says, all things were made through him. He created us because he wanted to, not because he needed to. He chose to create and multiply his glory on the earth and in creation. He created you in his very image. Here's what I love when you read Genesis 1 and 2. He goes through creation with this affirming talk, going around and making stuff, good stuff, and telling himself how good it was. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Man, giraffes, they just, they just bend over and eat stuff off the ground, and the capillaries in their blood don't explode their brains. How do you explain that? I don't know. That's good, though. Only I could do that. That's good. And then he got to you and me and us, and he said, that's good. And some of us disagree with him when we look in the mirror. He loves you, and he says, that's good stuff. And it's entirely not your fault. He made it good, and he says it's good. It, it's kind of, my eight-year-old daughter, Hadassah, when she was three, kind of exhibited this image of God, this reflection of, of God's behavior when she was three years old. I will never forget her coloring and this constant self-affirming chatter as she colored. Oh, that's good. That's pretty. That's good. She was exhibiting Godness. His image. God calls us good, and then he tells us to be like him, to go into the earth and make good stuff, to expand his glory. He says, take dominion. It's what's known as the dominion mandate. To expand the glory of of his presence in the garden into which we were created. There was an adventure that we were made for in knowing God, something that in comparison, sin is just silliness. And he made us for something good, and yet what went wrong? The fall. Number two, what went wrong? Let me warn you that the answer to the question, what went wrong, is ridiculously simple, but we are not simple because of this very problem. We complicate things because of the problem when it's really simple. It's my fault. It's your fault. That's the answer. What went wrong is us. And because we're so sinful, we, we don't want to allow the simple realities to speak for themselves. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. Why? Verse 11, he came into his own And his own people did not receive him. So what went wrong with the world, according to this? Well, Republicans, right? No. Just want to see if you're still with me. That's not the right answer. The right answer is that mankind rejected the very light of our maker. Our first parents did this in the garden, Adam and Eve. You've heard the story. Listen, it's not a story or a myth about an apple. It might not have even been an apple. I think it was a fig. Some think it might have been a a dragon fruit. Either way, it's not about the fruit. 
What went wrong in the garden is God said, here's how you can live and do what I want and take dominion and have a glorious life. And we instead doubted that when the enemy tempts us. And it wasn't just a story about a snake, but think about the things that you've believed. Comes to Adam and Eve and the worst lie of all. You don't need to do what God said. He's holding out you. He's holding out on you. You do what you want. And that believing that lie is responsible for every moment of destruction and, and awfulness in human existence. That lie has been respun in our culture. Follow your heart or the, the recent hashtag, you do you. But let me, I, I won't even just tell you that that's wrong. Let me just tell you, you cannot do that. You cannot do what you want. There are laws that dictate that that's impossible. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about civil laws because you do what you want. Everyone does what they want. Well, some people go to jail. Some armies kill other armies. It's destructive. You can't do what you want civilly. But as one of my friends and one of the leaders in our ministry was pointing out, Adam Mabry, uh, one of our leaders of our Every Nation Church in Boston, he was saying even the laws of nature, you can't do what you want. What if you just woke up one day and said, all right, God, what I want to do is photosynthesize. Well, you can't do that. You can't fly without the help of some really good technology. You can't do what you want. And us trying to do so and spitting in the face of God is what went wrong with humanity. Instead of doing what God wants and what he made us for, we do what we want. We reject God's light. It's not just a story of Adam and Eve, but this, if you allow this to sink in, it will change your life. What went wrong with the world and what is at the radical core of all your problems isn't that person, it's not the other person, it's not the Republicans or the Democrats or your dad. It is you and me rejecting the light of God. This is the essence of all of my marital arguments. It's that my wife is being irrational. No. It's that I'm rejecting the light of God. And she is too. We're doing what we want instead of what he wants. He, he exposes that with his light. With this part of the story, I want to tell you there is more explanatory, more diagnostic power in this ingredient of our story than perhaps any other part I came to know Jesus at 14 years old. And you know one of the things that I love and have since then and today, what I love most about the Bible is that it tells me with cutting accuracy, like really close to home, what's wrong with me. Even before it says really how it can be made right. Because what's the point of of trying to embrace a solution to a problem that you're unaware of or you're not seeing? Only the light of God can expose our darkness. You can try all sorts of other things, but there's diagnostic power in this. I grew up in Oregon where the liberalism and humanism story was pretty rampant. I added that to my like faker Catholicism story and I just had a big mix and confusing juice of different stuff. I didn't know God, and yet I, I was convinced I thought I did. Anyone ever been there? I'd heard so many explanations for what was wrong with the world, and it led for me to a lot of different false solutions and heartache in the midst of it. 
But when I was first invited to a Bible study, September 11th of 1997, a campus ministry, I remember that that day that there was good news probably at the end of that meeting, but I didn't hear the good news. All I just, I just heard what went wrong. I heard the bad news. And I didn't receive the good news the first time I came. In fact, there was a strange amount of peace that I'd never felt before, and this is going to sound weird, from just me hearing the bad news of what went wrong with the world and therefore why my sin is unacceptable. It's an offense to God. It incurs the wrath on me and others. The Bible showed me what was wrong. Now, the next week I went back and I heard the good news. But there's something about accuracy about what went wrong that's so powerful. Anyone who's ever been sick, which is all of us, you know the pain of an undiagnosed disease. Or worse yet, a misdiagnosed disease. It's a strange piece when you find out actually what's wrong, right? When a doctor can actually diagnose something accurately. And for me, hearing what the Bible had to say about my sin and my perversion and how I'm responsible for the problems in the world every bit as much as the ISIS guy is, it hurt. But listen, the surgeon's knife heals, but it still cuts. Just like the word of God, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. So the bad news is that God brings us his light and we reject it. Now I'm going to go deeper into this. A few chapters later, John is following the same thought. And saying these things got him in trouble. In fact, got him boiled in water. And he survived it and continued to write some of these things that we're saying he gets more specific in John chapter 3 about this whole rejecting the light thing. Right after the famous verses, John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Check this out, verse 19 and 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. So we're made in the image of God. And yet we're also fallen from the image of God. And this contributes to a painful amount of confusion. That word confusion probably tells the human condition of fallenness better than anything. We have the, the flicker of God's light in us and yet we're fallen too. And different stories have tried to answer this question in different ways. In fact, check this out. The Taoism story, you might have seen the yin and the yang before. This is evidently or, or allegedly, there's in God, there's a little bit of light in his darkness and a little bit of darkness in his light. Well, this is wrong. But I think that this little misunderstanding was a projection of what's wrong with us. Why is it that there's a little bit of light in my darkness and a little bit of darkness in my light? Why is there so much confusion in me? Thank you, you can take that down. Why? See, we're, we're fallen, and yet there's still flickers of light in us. And here's the thing about it. We're even more prone to God's judgment, rightly so, because of how we handle that. Because we take credit for the light of God that's really his responsibility, And we don't glorify him for it. 
And then we pass off the responsibility of what's wrong with us in the darkness. And we never allow his light to expose our darkness. And this is the condition of, of sin that humanity is rampant with. We're, we incur judgment. Even the light of God that, that's in us, we don't give him credit for. That's the fallenness of humanity. I've been listening in recent, recent months, months to NPR's uh, On Being program. It's various interviews with Krista Tippett where she will interview these brilliant people, astrophysicists, behavioral psychologists, and she always asks the God question. It's one of her quintessential questions. And almost invariably, all of these people deny a faith in God. And what's so strange as you continue to listen to them is how their brilliance, their respect and reverence for the created order, the the way that they exhibit the image of God through their minds that can only be explained by God creating them, that they nonetheless reject him. It really paints the picture of how it says in John 1, he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Here you have people who are living proof texts for the very God they're denying. We're made in God's image. We're fallen from God's image. And our ability, our effort to try to do good things only incurs more judgment and evil on the earth. We have it totally backwards. And yet there's hope. The third element of our story is redemption. If you don't understand how difficult and dark it is, then his light won't make much sense to you. Check this out. Verse 11 says he came to his own and we rejected his light, but verse 12 goes on to say, but all who did receive him. How is that? Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It says that his own didn't receive him in verse 11, but then it says in verse 12 that, that to, the, to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, aren't we already children of God? No. No, we're not. We're made to be children of God. But remember, when we believe the lie of the enemy, and all of us have, we surrendered our birthright to the enemy, and we became what First John says is children of the devil. So we're born and we grow without this redemption piece. We grow as children of the devil. And it says here that Jesus came into our utter darkness to shine his light so that he could give rights for people who have, we only have rights to be children of the devil, to become children of the light, children of God. The very seed of the light that we reject comes into the world, like Picasso going into his own paintings or Mozart entering his own music, which I can't explain that any more than I can explain our very creator, the source of our light, coming into our existence, living the life that we should have lived. Here's what's great about our redemption part of our story. Every other, part, every other story tells that redemption happens by humans trying to get back to God, essentially, or get back to oneness. Our story is of God coming to us in our darkness with his light. God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived and therefore gained the birthright, confirmed his birthright, 
to have eternal life. And yet he chose to trade our birthright for his birthright, our birthright of death and a a cross to die on. A death and an eternal death to die. He died the death that we should have died in our place. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He really did. To prove that he is God. And to gain the power to make the trade our right for his right. He gave us the right to become, all who believed in him, to become children of God. Now, how is this believing initiated? How do, I, how do I believe this like this? Do I just go to church enough and that I can believe it? Do I pray towards Mecca? Do I do these things to show that I'm really a believer? No. You just believe. You say, well, Pastor Peter, that's just way too easy. What else is there? There's nothing else. What do I got to do to believe this? Nothing. That's not easy. You can't say that's easy to a man who hung on a cross for hours and hours and for every little breath, he had to pull himself up on his nails just to get one breath. It's not easy, it's mercy. Creation, the fall, redemption, and finally restoration. I'm just gonna read this one verse. The word, the logos, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So when I'm converted, when I'm redeemed, when I receive this redemption, I believe in him. He gives me the right to become a child of God. I'm born not of flesh, but of God. I'm born again. What from there? Everything from that point forward is not living for the faith. It's living from the faith. Everything from there is an adventure of purification and sanctification, and more Jesus. And when you get more Jesus, you get some more Jesus. And it's an exhilarating and powerful thing. Jesus gives us his glory. We see it. We savor it. We grow in it. We have new life in Christ. We're not just supposed to stop having fun sinning and pleasing ourselves. We're supposed to trade that in for the freedom of something so much better. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He's a 20th century author and apologist. He wrote Mere Christianity, and he says this. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our sinful desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son of the father. Let that be how God restores us. Would you pray with me? God, you made us for something good, glorious. We've fallen from it. Lord, Some of us in this room are still in the wrong story. They may be like me. They think they they, they know you and they really don't. And I don't have to convince anyone. Your spirit is showing them right now. Not just for a moment of, hey, uh, I, I need to repent, but for a glorious future and an unwasted life. I pray that you would reveal that if that's you, if the Holy Spirit's saying you don't, 
You don't yet know me. I'm not going to ask you right now to raise your hand or come forward. I'm going to ask you to pray to God. Right as we're in here in this room, that right now you can be, this can be a moment. God, I'm a sinner. Pray in your heart. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. Please restore me and make me new. That's it. Jesus has ordained this moment. It was his will, and you need to participate. Just pray that. But I pray that you would also put it on our hearts. The, the rest of the adventure that maybe we are, if, if we're Christians in here, we are avoiding through busyness or worry or fear. I pray that you would, with your light, you would expose those things that help, that prevent us from, from really seeing the exhilarating nature of the, the glory of knowing you and making you known. Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to Christians in this room so that they would know how to trade inglorious things for your glory. Amen.